Hey, this is Vadim. A couple of quick notes. If you haven't checked out last week's episodes yet, highly recommend you do that. We spoke to Yesko Lohan of Acoustics Insider about recording room acoustics. There's two episodes there. One is kind of the main episode, and the second one is a Q&A with uh, questions from the Facebook community. They were two of our most popular episodes to date, and you can check the show notes of those episodes to get Yesko's free guide, which is called Five Steps to Recording Room Acoustics on a Budget. We are currently putting the finishing touches on our brand new website, and that came with brand new email addresses. So you can reach me at Vadim at DIYRecordingGuys.com, and Ben is at Ben at DIYRecordingGuys.com. Finally, if you want to support the podcast and encourage us to keep having discussions like the ones we had with Yesco, take a few minutes or maybe even just one minute. Leave us an iTunes review. This small step really helps us expand our reach and our platform and ensures that we can continue having bigger and better discussions and hopefully even get some freebies for you guys down the road. Today's episode is on gain staging, which is something that can be a bit intimidating when you're first starting out with recording. I think we did a nice job kind of unpacking it. We talk about a visual analogy for gain staging that should help you think about it. We talk about preamps versus power amps, gain knobs versus level knobs, troubleshooting noise and distortion in your signal chain, the concept of unity gain, the role of metering, and much more. It's actually a jam-packed episode now that I look at it. Enjoy. You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production. With your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Ben Hall from Dreamlot Studio. How have you been, Vadim? Not too bad, my man. What's going on? I heard you, uh, you've got some buzz around the studio. You got a couple sessions. You got a contest. Give me the lowdown. That's right. So one of the contest winners that I had for my stay-at-home recorders, which I'm so <laughs> proud of that name, <laughs> uh, yeah. Rec... Wreck all lowercase and then orders. Yeah. You, anyways, you get it. Yes, yeah, um, so I got I'll, you. No, I, yeah, that's right. Because I did. I saw it on social media, so I uh, I got the joke right away. But I'm glad. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you explained the visual component to it. <laughs> yes, yes. I realized. Yeah, you're not gonna hear it just in me saying it. But um, anyway, so one of the first prize winners, um, I asked if he wanted to come over and record vocals, uh, to the song that he entered, and he said, "Yeah, let's do it. Let's come on over." So. We had a lot of fun, probably, we spent probably too long working on vocals, but it was fun. Um, like a four hour session in my studio, just a lot of that was just hanging out and talking about new music and stuff that we like more so mm. than just the recording. Um, but I did want to talk about this new microphone. Yeah, that I got to ask you, how, made, how does vocals, how does vocals sound through the mask? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, Cause you know, it was, well, <laughs> the governor says you got to wear masks indoors, man, if you're a business. That's true. That's true. That's true. Well, um, come arrest me now, Emperor Wolf. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. We've, we've really got off the rails now. Uh, hopefully yeah, he's not yeah. listening. I doubt, I doubt he's really into audio production. But anyways, um, 
now I'm thinking about like if if this like mask stuff like hangs around for very much longer, then we're gonna have audio companies like optimizing masks that you can sing through, and it doesn't like take any high. Oh yeah, acoustically acoustically transparent masks. That'll that sells itself. <laughs> we should, let's get on that, man. That's a million dollar idea. Oh my gosh, it is. You're so right. Back to vocal recording though. Uh, so I've mentioned on the podcast before that I invested in the Slate V. VMS microphone system. So it is the world's first half analog, half digital microphone. And what that means is um, it is a physical microphone that you buy. And the idea is it has a completely flat response or as close to flat as they can possibly get with their components. And then um, along with it comes some software that emulates a variety of different microphones, everything from, um, I have a list somewhere, but uh, it's a bunch of different ones from Sony to Telefunken to, um, oh, Universe, is it Universal that makes the U87? Universal Audio? Uh, Neumann. Neumann, that's it. My bad. Yeah, yeah they make a lot of different uh, emulations of these world-class microphones more affordable so you don't have to go out and buy any of these microphones that are thousands of dollars so i just downloaded a trial of their blackbird studio expansion packs now it's now it's like a video game company where they have dlc to buy onto these uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. microphones uh but the latest one comes with apparently an emulation of the most sought-after Telefunken 251 microphone on the planet. In fact, so coveted that the owner of Blackbird only lets his wife use this microphone, who, and his wife is Martina McBride. The reason this mic is so special is because pretty much every large pop star today, everything from John Legend, John Legend to Demi Lovato to... Whoever else you want to think of loves singing into this microphone. It just has such a silky smooth response. And I think it's really cool that they let Slate Digital get an emulation of this microphone so you can try in your home studio. And I have to tell you, like, even I basically did a blind test. So I opened up this mic pack and I started scrolling through the mics and just picking the one that I thought sounded the best. And I was like, man, that microphone sounds really good. And sure enough, it was that one that they were talking about because they give you like 10 different ones to choose from. I like that you say, I've <laughs> invested in the Slate microphone system as if that somehow makes it better than just saying, <laughs> I just spent a bunch of money on this microphone <laughs> system. <laughs> you know, you would have to be in a top signed band to have access to to gear like this and now we have emulations that are easily affordable to anybody listening to this to be able to record yeah and so it's it's just really cool to see how accessible all this stuff is getting so it really is kind of like um it's kind of like the gate the gatekeepers of old are kind of going by the wayside and now really the only thing that's separating you from international superstardom is just your creativity really yeah absolutely that is exciting Cool, man. So what are we talking about today? Today's episode is all about gain staging. Dun, dun, dun. Ooh. Gain staging is one of those things that- I'm really excited about this, actually. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I'm always excited about these, these uh, nerding out on these topics. <laughs> but yeah, gain staging is one of those things that, that people 
probably everybody has heard the term and and probably a lot of people aren't exactly sure what it means. So I'm just going to start this off as I like to with real world, barely related <laughs> analogies. But Ben, have you ever played those games where it's like a side scrolling game, two dimensional, and you're controlling like a little, a little flying uh, airplane or a little spacecraft? A flappy bird, if you will. Is that, is that, I don't actually, is that one of them? Is that one of the games? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I remember whatever, like, don't you remember when Flappy Bird, like, fever took took over all of us? I don't remember anything about Flappy Bird, so maybe I, maybe I was blacked out. But <laughs> oh my gosh, it was like one of those stupid games where you tap the screen and you have to have your little bird, he, like, hops up and down, you have to have him go yes. through, like, the, the area of the walls. Exactly. And, oh my gosh, it, like, took, it took over, like, I don't know, mobile phones for, like, a month. All right, I'm going to download it right after this. But yeah, so for people who haven't played Flappy Bird, <laughs> the idea is that the screen is constantly moving from left to right. You're controlling some kind of flying thing, and there's only one button. If you're holding the button or pressing the button, your flying object is moving up, and if you let go of it, the flying object is moving down, and you have to navigate through... You have to kind of feather the button to navigate through these obstacles. And so the reason that's kind of like a gain-staging analogy is because... The bird or the flying object is kind of like our signal as it's traveling through all of these different processing stages. And our job is to make sure that the level is not too high, but it's also not too low for each of those stages, right? So a more technical way to say that same thing (laughs) is that we're basically adjusting the level at each of our processing stages to get an optimal signal-to-noise ratio right? Without distortion. So to start this off, we can review two things we talked about in the bitrate episode. Uh, One is noise floor and the second one is headroom. So we said noise floor is kind of like the baseline of noise that's in every single recording signal chain we can come up with. Anytime we're using any kind of gear, there's going to be some baseline level of noise. And we want our signal to be loud enough, high enough above that noise so that we get way more signal than noise. And that's called the signal-to-noise ratio. So a good signal-to-noise ratio is where you can barely hear any of the noise. A bad signal-to-noise ratio is if you can start hearing that hiss or that hum. So that's noise floor. We want to be above the noise floor. Headroom is the opposite range. It's, it's, It's the limit of how loud we can get before we run into some kind of distortions, whether it's analog gear or digital gear, If we push the signal through a stage too hard, we start to get breakup. What that means is basically, I think you said this, Ben, which I like a lot, it's we've exceeded the capacity of that processing stage to represent our signal cleanly. And so it kind of distorts it or introduces some kind of artifacts. I'm just so happy that with the Flappy Bird analogy, you said feather your way through. It was just such a good pun. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? That's a great that's a great addition actually. I'm glad you I'm glad you spotlighted that. Thank you. It actually wasn't intentional, no. but uh that's but what made no, it all I'm going to say it was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great summary though of um noise floor and headroom. Now that we've gone over our review, what's the next thing we got to think about here? Right. So we can start with um like an analog gear explanation, just because analog sometimes is easier to think about before we jump into digital. So back in the day, if you went into a studio to record vocals, you would be singing into a microphone, which we still do. As Ben just described, in his studio, you can sing into one 
of a dozen microphones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yes. sound excellent. So so that microphone signal, if you go remember back to like episode two or three, that microphone signal then has to go to a preamp to get converted from a very, very quiet mic level signal to get boosted up to like a line level signal. And the device that does that is a preamp. So that's an amplification stage right there. Then we might send that signal to something like an equalizer. Then we might send it to something like a compressor, some kind of other effects like delays or reverbs. And then finally, we would send that signal onto our uh, tape, into our tape channel or our mixing board channel, then into the tape so we can actually record it. So each one of those things we described, the preamp, the EQ, the compressor, those are all processing stages. And we need to kind of be aware of what our signal going into each of those stages is to get whatever result we want. So we need to consider our goal here. Our goal could be to get as pristine and cleaner recording as possible. That might be what we want. Or we may want some saturation or distortion or overdrive, like if we're recording guitars. Obviously, we want distortion there. So there's a couple of challenges with the setup. Each piece of gear, first of all, introduces some noise. right? It's got some power supply, and inherently, there's going to be some noise. So if our signal is too low going into that gear, and then if we boost it later down the road, we're also going to be boosting the noise together with it. If our signal is too high going into any mm. stage, then we're going to introduce some distortion. All right. So again, our goal is to hit, hit each of those stages with a level that has a high enough signal-to-noise ratio, as high a signal-to-noise ratio as possible without introducing unwanted distortion. What do you think? Exactly. It's interesting, and maybe I'm jumping into this a little bit too early here, so stop me if I am, but it's it's interesting to think about the differences from the old days of analog gear only versus the new days of digital. So in the old days, you might decide that you want to get an analog distortion, so you might purposely drive the signal. And that's something we don't have to worry about nowadays. I think I remember hearing a story with the Beatles when they were first recording um, in Ab... Maybe it was Abbey Road or maybe it was an earlier album, but that's kind of where like the guitar distortion sound came from. And it wasn't from a pedal. It wasn't from an amp. It was from overdriving the mixing console. So they literally mm. were pushing the analog signal of the guitar amp uh, to the limits of what the console could happen. And it had this pleasant breakup from the electronics and the transformers and the and the all the components of that are in an analog uh, console just had this very pleasant way of saturating and squashing the wave um, but in nowadays in our digital setups we have emulations of that but the goal is um, the goal is a well maybe the, the end goal is the same but the way about the way of going about it is much different because if we were to do the same thing in a digital setup, we would introduce digital distortion, which is a whole nother animal animal and it sounds terrible and it's something to be avoided at all costs. Yeah, we'll get into that a little down the road, but I, I don't think it's quite as different as you think, because the the kind of yeah, the spoiler alert conclusion here is that we if we want to distort we can decide we just have to make a conscious decision which one of those processing stages we want to distort in because they may distort the sound in different ways so in the example you gave mm. they were playing around with it they're like oh man we really like the distortion we're getting from this one particular gain stage which happened to be 
the mixing console. And so they went with that. You could very well say, well, I like the distortion stage I'm getting from my dual rectifier amplifier. <laughs> and you can use that. So you, yeah, we can decide where we want to distort. And that's kind of the conclusion of the of the gain staging episode. But I'll give you another example here that actually just happened to me driving today. It happens to me a lot in the car. Mm. So when I get in the car, I, I listen to audio off of my phone through the Bluetooth in the car. And so if you think about what's happening there, my phone is sending an audio signal via Bluetooth to my car. And so I have two independent level controls there. I have two gain stages, so to speak. My first gain stage is the output of the phone. I can control the Bluetooth output volume using my phone volume knob, um, buttons. And then right. I also have a volume knob in the car. And so what I found was happening was like I was just driving, so I just grabbed the volume knob in my car and I turned it up to a comfortable volume and there was a ton of noise. And the reason was because my phone, my Bluetooth output was set very, very low. And so by pushing the volume too hard on the car, what I was doing was amplifying both the signal and the noise that was coming through the Bluetooth from the phone, mm. if that makes sense. And so a cleaner way to do that, and I quickly adjusted it, was to drive up my Bluetooth volume to maybe three quarters of the way and then roll off my car volume. And so my end, my music was the same level, but I had a lot less noise. I've had the same different problem with my new phone, which is so annoying <laughs> to me because my old phone, it sounded great when I maxed out the phone and then just adjusted the volume in my car. Mm. But now my new phone, if I do the same thing, it overdrives audio. So I have to click it down a couple buttons. So it goes back to our- gotcha previous example of what's an ideal what's an ideal level to set our gain stage at it's not so low that our volume is near that noise floor but it's not so high that we're uh, we're getting ready to eclipse that headroom and yes. introduce yes. distortion right and the key is what are you sending to the next stage so like in your example if you were overdriving at the phone output you're already sending something that's distorted to the car and so even if you turn the car down it doesn't matter the distortion's already been introduced at a previous stage and the, which is mm. the opposite of what happened in my example where my phone volume output was too low so what i sent to the car was let's say 75% signal and 25% noise well when i amplify that that 25% noise becomes really problematic so a, a more uh, an example of that that's more applicable to recording and music in general is, and this is where we get into the different gain stages of our devices, something like a guitar amp. So if you think about common controls on a guitar amp, and I, I was confused, I was really confused about this as a kid, but you may have like a gain knob on your guitar amp, but then you'll also have a master volume knob. And at first glance, you might think, well, what's the difference between these two things? Well, the gain circuit is designed, and this is true for like pedals as well, oftentimes there's a gain or distortion or drive circuit that's designed to break up. So if you adjust that knob, you're pushing the signal into that distorting circuit and causing some breakup. Whereas the master volume knob or like the level knob on an overdrive pedal, those are designed to be clean boost stages. So if you've turned up your gain and you've gotten distortion, no matter how low you turn your master volume, that distortion is already there. It's just going to get quieter. 
Whereas if you keep your gain very low, you can turn up your master volume very loud and then get a clean boost. So that's kind of a simplest example in, let's say, a guitar and a guitar signal chain of these different gain stages and how they're designed differently to affect your signal. I can see, uh, I can see your. <laughs> You're, you're twisting your whiskers, so I can see you got you got some <laughs> thoughts going on. So give it to me. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up that example, and it's very helpful that we have a guitarist example and a bass player's example. So, on my favorite bass amp that I own, um, I had to face this problem head on and figure out how I was going to deal with it because in my signal chain, now this is just for my analog live playing. I'm not recording anything. I'm just playing, but it, it's a good example. And it shows, I think it shows a couple different things. It shows one, you can decide where you want to distort. And two, uh, it really pays off to know your gear and read the manual. So, <laughs> uh, how this dare Mesa you? Boogie, how dare you sully this conversation with manuals? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, this Mesa Boogie bass amplifier that I have. It's a tubed head, and the way that it's set up to work, and you'll have to tell me if guitar amps are set up this way. I I don't think so, but maybe. Um, there's 10 tubes in this bass amp head, and the gain stage is kind of like the preamp, and five of those tubes are dedicated to uh, the gain knob. So as you turn up the gain on the front end, you're introducing more distortion on your preamp going into the amp. And then the master volume controls the output signal, but it's also connected to another five tubes on the output. So I guess theoretically you could introduce more distortion or warmth through those tubes. Just an interesting thought. So I think ideally the way to make that amp work is to have kind of the gain and master work in tandem. Because before what I would do, and this is just playing around with it, there's a lot of different combinations you could do. If you want a very clean bass tone, you could turn your preamp gain down super low and your master super hot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, that, <clears throat> that's exactly how guitar amplifiers work. And mm. the power amp distortion... So driving that power amp really hot, which means you have to crank your amp, which is it's going to get super loud on a tube amp. Power amp distortion is actually considered very smooth, and it can be desirable to distort the power amp stage. Um, in practice, in like a whole small home studio, like in, uh, in my studio, for example, I find that I just it just makes it really difficult to work with an amp that's cranked that ungodly loud. So I prefer to use the preamp stages to distort like what, what you said and also in combination mm. with um, a boost pedal you can use that's again it's another gain stage you can drive the signal even hotter into the preamp stage and then achieve some results that way so this is kind of where we're going with this discussion but I will tell you also that some amps like the first amp I ever had had two gain knobs and a volume knob so it had three gain stages just in that one amp and those two gain uh, knobs. They were both kind of quote unquote distortion circuits, but they sounded a little bit different. And of course you can combine them uh, or you can choose to use one over the other. So these are things to play around with. And, and I like what you said there, which is that you ha kind of have to know which circuit does what to your sound. Because again, mm. this is another spoiler here, but what you don't want to do 
is plug in everything into this complicated chain and you got all these things and then you get a distortion that is meh and you don't love it, you don't hate it, and you're not really sure. So you just start cranking knobs wildly, <laughs> trying to figure out, trying to hone in on something. That's the, what you don't want to do. What you want to know is what each of your stages is getting and then what it's outputting. So absolutely. Kind of, yeah, along those lines, almost like a troubleshooting example is let's say you've plugged everything in back in our analog vocal example, and then the vocalist starts singing, but there's distortion. When you play back the recording, there's distortion. How do you troubleshoot that? Well, this is where you need to start considering the level hitting each stage individually and all the way through. And we're going to talk about how to do this. Before we do that, let's jump quickly into the digital world. You might say, well, I'm purely in the box. Everything I do is digital. Why do I care about this? Well, the truth is when you put a bunch of plugins on a channel, you're effectively doing the same thing. Each one of those plugins is doing something to the signal. And Typically, a lot of plugins have some sort of input and output level controls, and you can absolutely overload a plugin. Of course, in, in the digital world, as you said, it's even more dangerous in a sense because analog components tend to break up in a pleasant way. They introduce second order and third order harmonics, which are nice. When we overdrive a digital thing like a plugin, it typically gets ugly. And you can have the same type of situation where you have five plugins on a track and you're getting some kind of crappy sound and you don't know what it is. You're going to have to go through and troubleshoot those things step by step. Yes, I do want to mention, uh, this uh, This also happened to me. So when I record guitar, if I record the the, the DI or the direct inject or direct, um, yeah, the direct inject signal, so I plug my guitar into my interface or um, actually into a preamp that I use. I use a uh, Universal Audio 4710D preamp. And the same thing I just said is true on this preamp. This preamp has uh, a tube circuit in it, and it has a, uh, let me see what it's actually called. It's called, yeah, it has a, a gain knob and a level knob. So it has two knobs. And... It's the same concept I just talked about. The gain knob is designed to introduce some harmonics and the level knob is designed to be a clean boost. And I was actually, this, this actually happened to me. I was recording just a direct guitar signal and I put a plug in on it right away and I was like, it didn't sound quite right. So I'd listen to the naked direct signal that I recorded. I was like, oh my God, there's already distortion in here. And it was because mm -hmm. the way I had my preamp setting set was I was driving the gain too hard. So what I did was I just backed off the gain and turned up the level, the clean boost, and then I was able to get a clean signal. In that case, I wanted to record a clean signal. I did not want to introduce any distortion in in my preamp stage. You ever had anything like that? Not with me recording specifically, but when I've been mixing other projects, in fact, with one client in general, um, all the DIs that they sent me were so hot. And... When I say hot, I don't mean that their volume was loud. I mean that in some way they were distorted. I'm putting that in air quotes because it wasn't quite distortion. It was saturation, which is another type of distortion. And no matter what plugin or virtual amp simulator I put on it, it, it just didn't sound right. It sounded too broken up. And I determined mm. that, well, when I asked the client about it, they said that they used an emulated line out from the back of their cab instead of yeah. just plugging straight into their interface. And so what I'm guessing is 
the emulated line out was emulating some type of cab I, um, IR response or some type of amp saturation. And it was adding too much distortion. So too many layers of distortion was just, uh, it, it was building up too quickly. So it just didn't sound pleasant anymore. Right. And then they wanted you to, were they expecting you to reamp that somehow? Yeah, yeah, because it was supposed yeah. to be, it was weird though, because it was supposed to be a DI signal, and it sounded, when I played it just nakedly, it sounded similar to a DI, but not as clean as something I would expect, so. I've gotten this, I've gotten a similar thing, and yeah, that does make it a little bit trickier. So, okay, so let's talk about some techniques for getting your gain staging right. Now that you kind of understand what it is, we got to feather our signal through all these different processing stages, so we're hitting each stage just right. So what are our options here to get our gain staging right? Well, Ben already talked about one of them, which is to understand what each of your stages sounds like in and of itself. And if you're in the analog domain, like you're dialing in a guitar tone, it's a good idea to build that tone up piece by piece. So understand what the output of your guitar sounds like, because guess what? Your guitar has a volume knob on it. That is effectively a gain stage. Or it could be, especially on active pickups, where the, um, you know, on active pickups, if you actually put a, like a 9-volt battery into your guitar or bass, that means that, that uh, there's basically a preamp circuit inside the instrument. So you have to understand what that should, sounds like. And it should be clean. Those You should not be able to really distort that stage. But then you want to kind of build up and understand what the output of each stage sounds like. So that's you're kind of like... Like you said, calibrating your room, right? When you listen to pieces of music, you know, this is kind of like calibrating your gear in a sense. Um, the next, so that's, that's the first technique is you can listen to the output of each stage and just say, am I introducing distortion or not? And if I am, do I want it? <laughs> do I want distortion from this particular stage? In most cases for something like guitar, you'll want to pick one, maybe two stages to introduce distortion but not really more than that because you'll start getting into kind of like a muddy a muddy mess. The next thing I want to mention is unity gain, which is another term you may have heard. Unity gain is very important both in recording and mixing. What unity gain means is that the loudness, the level of the signal going into a stage is the same as the level of the signal coming out of the stage. Okay? And this is important for a number of reasons. One is it makes sure we're not tricking our ears into thinking something sounds better or worse than it actually does. So I mentioned the story on a previous episode, but um, and I forget who to credit this to always, but somebody was talking about a, a session they were doing with a mastering engineer and the mastering engineer said, hey, I'm going to play you two versions of this mix. Tell me which one you think is better, A or B. And everybody kind of listened and most people agreed that B sounded better. And they were like, what'd you do to make B sound better? And he said, the only difference was that B was one dB louder, <laughs> right? Wow. So we have a preference yeah. for, for thinking that a little bit louder might be better. And this happens all the time. You slap on a plugin and some plugins are actually designed where they, <laughs> the default settings make the signal a little bit louder and you're like, oh yeah, that's better. But you could be tricking yourself. It could just be louder. Mm -hmm. So anytime you're using plugins, or even if you're using a like a, a pedal in your guitar signal chain, getting unity gain means that when you click the pedal on and off, unless you want to get a boost, which you may in some cases, but in most cases when you're just trying to figure out what the pedal does, you want the loudness to remain unaffected. And then what you can get is the actual character 
of the pedal or of the plug-in, saying, okay, what is this actually doing without changing the volume? This is really the bread and butter of this podcast episode and why we're talking <laughs> about it, because yeah. it's so it's so tricky to achieve that unity gain sound, but it's so important if you want to be objective and if you really want to decide if extra things you're adding or things you're changing to your tone are actually making are making it better or worse. Um, and I guess how how I want to begin talking about this is, so my signal chain is pretty complicated whenever it comes to playing bass. So let's just go back to our analog example. We're not recording yep. anything. We're just playing. So I plug my bass into a compressor pedal that goes through at least one distortion pedal, maybe two, and then I have chorus that I can go through and delay and then at the very end a volume pedal. And then that goes to my amp that has two different gain stages on it. It has a preamp and a master volume. So when we add all those up, we've got like between eight to 10 different areas where the gain sta sta staging could change. And the tricky thing about this is so when I turn on my distortion pedal on my bass, and that in and of itself has a blend control, I can be all the way from 0% uh, distortion, 100% clean signal, all the way up to 100% distorted. So that distorted signal changes the coloration of the tone. So I might even be fooling myself to the level of the volume because the tone has changed. So let me give you an example as to why that could be. So if I have a just a clean bass tone, I'm thumping away and it's very funky, so it's mostly low end. Like I'm, pl I'm playing on a, a Warwick bass or something like that that's just really woody sounding and, and really deep at low end. Like it could be extremely loud but not sound loud to our ears because it's all sub low end and not too much in the talking frequencies. So we might not perceive it or I might not perceive it as very loud. But then, uh, but it actually is loud. It's just all sub-frequencies that my ears can't hear as well. So then I click on my distortion pedal and all of a sudden I add all of these harmonics and I bring out more of the bass tones that are in um, those frequencies that our ears are more optimized to hearing. The talking frequencies, especially between one kilohertz and you know five kilohertz, anywhere in that range. So as I'm introducing those harmonics, it's making the perceived volume get a lot louder, but if I, uh, but I might actually be getting quieter and, and vice versa. So just changing that one setting, if I think, oh, my distortions made it too loud now, and now I'm going to turn down my output, well then the next uh, part of my signal chain, it's not going to be hitting it at the same volume. So I might mm -hmm. be going into my amp quieter now, and now my gain staging is completely off for my amp. So I know yeah. I talked a lot around about this, but that's why this is really kind of important to, I don't know, in some ways, like just sit back away from, like the time to, the, the time not to think about gain, gain staging is 15 minutes whenever you're setting up your gear on a stage before you play a show. <laughs> um, like, 
like in some ways, like you just need to take time away, like on a weekend, uh, on a Saturday where you have nothing else going on and just play around with your pedals and stuff and, and all the gain staging, even from the volume knob on your guitar bass, do you have it maxed out the whole way or do you have it turned up only 50% or 70%? You know, all of yes. those things make a difference. Yes, absolutely. And and you said a couple of things there that I want to plant flags on. One is that uh, you can change, changing one stage can change the downstream stages because if you've clicked on something like your compressor uh, and that drives your signal hotter into your preamp, well, that preamp is going to break up more than it was breaking up before. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That could be a desirable thing. You just need to understand that that's what's going to happen. Similarly, you may want this effect. Like on bass, you have, you know you have, you mentioned you have the volume pedal. I know you know a lot of a common technique for guitars is to click on something like a compressor for when you're doing guitar solos. You may want something that introduces a volume boost or a distortion boost into your signal path. Absolutely, we're talking about unity gain is as a method of qualifying what each stage is doing. So if you can get that unity mm. gain, then you can truly hear what is this pedal doing to my signal when I click it on, or what is this plugin doing to my pedal when I click it on. So unity gain is a nice way to kind of objectively, more objectively qualify what each stage is doing. The third thing I want to mention here is metering. You may say, well, what about metering? I have this nice big meter in my DAW. It's showing me what my peak level is. Isn't that good enough? And the answer is maybe. Metering is great, but a meter, if you can picture like a physical chain of stuff, the meter is only inserted into one particular part of that chain. So in the case of your DAW, your meter is probably just reading the output of that track, downstream of the track fader. Well, if you're clipping somewhere upstream of that, like in between two plugins, it's not going to show you that. So metering is great, but you have to be a little bit careful. A lot of plugins have their own meters, which is great. You definitely want to look at those plugin meters. Uh, but the meter, just the meter on your uh, DAW track may not be giving you the whole picture. And this is where we get into a really interesting topic of oversampling. Uh, oversampling is something a lot of newer plugins do. And Oversampling is specifically designed to kind of increase the headroom inside the plugin so that you avoid any unwanted clipping. So basically what happens is the signal comes into the plugin and the plugin upsamples. So it, it increases kind of the bit depth maybe from, let's say, 24 bits, which is what your session is at, up to, let's say, 32 bits. And it does its processing to your signal puts everything back together, and it's then it spits 24 bits back out. So basically, there's an internal headroom increase inside that plugin that the software designers included to, to help you not have problems. And this is great. A lot of modern plugins have this, but a lot of older plugins don't have this. So you still need to be aware of the level going into your plugins just as a, uh, as a best practice. And one... Um, one example of this is that I saw is, for example, if you have a bus, let's say you have a bunch of drum tracks and they're all routed to your drum bus. You can be clipping those individual drum tracks, but if you turn your drum bus down, you will effectively eliminate that clipping, which if you think about it is a bit of an artificial condition because we said in our, in our analog chain example, we said once you've created distortion in an upstream stage, 
The downstream stages are already going to have that distortion no matter what. But in modern digital audio workstations, they actually kind of protect you a little bit because they do this oversampling trick and you can actually uh, stay a little bit safer. But gain staging is still something you want to monitor either for, again, the sake of these older plugins or just as a best practice and make sure that you're not uh, hitting any stage too hard. The other thing, actually, I want you to talk about this again, but because uh, I, I, I remembered this as well, is that a lot of the plugins we use emulate analog gear, and mm. that can be done to a fault. Right? We can emu- Sometimes <laughs> we emulate that analog gear to a fault. So analog gear has some noise and things, and if we push those analog emulations too hard, we can start introducing some distortion and some noise as well. And again, we may want that distortion, but we don't always want it. So what's, tell me your story there again. That's a good point. Um, I don't know if it's this specific story, but um, there's a couple that come to mind. So I can remember when I first started getting into recording and mixing, and I had a common problem, and this is actually why I bought my noise reduction plug-in from Waves. But I had a common problem across all my mixes where once I mix and mastered them and compressed the heck out of them, I would just hear this sizzle of noise Mm. when the track was completely quiet. And the way that I got around it a lot of times was I would automate the volume of my master track completely off and then just have it explode (laughs) to normal, like unity level um, as soon as the track began. And I was trying to rack my brain as to where this noise and distortion was coming from because I felt like I was recording everything really cleanly and I had good gear and I realized what it was is the analog emulation on a lot of plugins that I was using. So, and I didn't understand really quite what it was doing, but uh, in particular, the Wave CLA plugins have an emulation, um, analog emulation button that you could put push on them, either 50, 60 hertz or off. And... I do tend to think that they sound better with the analog emulation. And what it's doing is it's trying to emulate the internal workings and the circuitry of what these old pieces of gear actually did, and specifically the ones that Chris Lord Algae has in his studio. But what they also emulate is just the noise floor that a lot of these analog um, compressors have. And so at the end of the day, Maybe one compressor doesn't make a difference, but when you copy and paste that compressor across your whole session, and maybe you have up to 20 different inferences of it, you've introduced 20 times the noise of that one plugin <laughs> and then compressed it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's the, um, I love analog emulation. I think it's it's an awesome thing for people that work in the box like me. But you have to understand what it's doing and how it works and not go overboard with it, like you said. Yeah, I had a very similar story where like, I, I was working on the session and I had, I just had this noise and I could even see it on the meters on like the output, you know, a frequency <laughs> analyzer, I could see it. And I, I get upset because like signal chain cleanliness is something that I feel like from the day you get into recording, you're constantly trying to like just get a cleaner signal chain, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought I had a pretty clean chain, and I'm like, where's this noise coming from? I got to check my cables. I don't know what's going on. And it was, I had a, a tape. It was like a, yeah, some master tape emulation plug-in on my master bus. And when I bypassed it, the noise went away, and I like breathed a sigh of relief. I was like, okay, it's not like bad. I don't have a piece of gear that's right. going bad. 
it's just this emulation of this noise. And you're right, a lot of these, a lot of the plugins have the give you the option of actually turning off the noise, which uh, in some cases you you may want to consider it. I want to take a side note too and talk about electronic music and EDM a little bit. Um, and I don't know yep. how many of our listeners produce that or work in that, but an interesting thing in that world is because the tones in the virtual instruments are so clean, a lot of um, tone making in electronic music is adding noise and introducing noise to the signal chain because huh. otherwise it just, it's kind of like an anechoic it's chamber. It sounds perfect. too Sterile. clean. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you can use these things to your advantage. Like it's not that noise is bad. It's not that distortion is bad. You just have to know how to use it. And really, I think at the end of the day, um, this is, it's really tricky to talk about what's good and what isn't good, but just use your ears. If it sounds pleasant, go with it. If you don't like it, try to eliminate it. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, Matt, and this maybe is a nice, nice place to start wrapping it up. So the process, just to summarize kind of what we talked about, when you're, when you're working and you're gain staging, you can do this either on paper or just in your head, kind of just take your pointer finger and kind of, just uh, point to all your your whole signal chain, whether on your DAR or just in your mind's eye. But find the first gain stage, right? Where's the first thing that's going to be changing your sound a little bit or that has an output a fader or an output knob or an input knob or something like that? And draw that whole chain out from that first gain stage so that you understand what all what all your gain stages are, first of all. Then you can identify metering points. So this is areas where you can kind of monitor what the level of the signal is. And you'll want to do that at every metering point you can do that. So for example, in the world of plugins, a lot of plugins have an input or output meter. You want to be monitoring that meter. Um, and then you also want to, um, as, as, as Ben said, you can then just, just listen. If you have the ability to listen to each output stage, listen to each output stage. The trick there is that, as we said, some stages will affect the stages that come after them. So you have to kind of make mm -hmm. some decisions there. As a rule of thumb, if you're trying to introduce distortion, try to focus on one or two distortion stages. And don't, because again, if you get into more than that, it starts to become a little complicated, a little muddy, a little tricky to work with. So try to pick the most pleasant one or two distortion stages and focus on those. And again, if you have metering points available, that's great. The other thing to remember is that, again, the metering on your plugin can be pre-fader or post-fader. What that means is, you know, you have that volume fader. If you imagine, you can just, just picture physically putting a meter either upstream of that fader or downstream of that fader. Obviously, then the fader is going to affect uh, the meter only in the downstream case. So you just want to be aware of that. The other thing is, um, we talked about this with digital metering in the past, but you want to be aware of the difference between a peak meter versus something like an RMS meter or a VU meter. In the digital realm, you typically care about peak when we talk about things like headroom. You want to kind of keep a few uh, decibels below that zero dBFS uh, point. And then, so the levers you have to pull, so this is how you set it up. You trace out your gain stages, pick your metering points, listen if you can. And then the levers you have to kind of pull, the degrees of freedom you have are the faders, input knobs, output knobs, gain knobs. These are all things that you use to kind of manipulate, to feather the bird, right? <laughs> what's, the, yeah, what's the game right. called? Flappy bird. 
Flappy Bird. You feather the Flappy Bird through all of these gain stages using these different um, these different uh, levers. Well said, Vadim. A couple notes that I want to talk about too. I think, and yep. we can decide how much we want to crop this out or leave or, or whatnot. But um, I'm imagining in people's home recording setups where they're just getting into this. Okay, that's awesome. But I do want to talk about the situation where somebody might be going through some external piece of gear or sure. something that's analog and talk about the difference a little bit between using a gain knob to optimize your signal versus the faders. And I, th- I think that what we can say about that, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but if we're using some analog piece of gear, whether that's a mixing board or something external to what we're plugging our input into, um, to, to control the level of our audio, um, you want to first set that level with your gain knob because that's optimizing this, the signal flow that's coming directly into the board. And then if you want to turn up and down from there, you use the faders. You don't do the opposite, which is um, setting your fader to a desirable position and then adjusting the gain to, to meet up with that, at least from a recording quality perspective yeah i definitely agree with that and that goes to what we were saying before where like the gain stage the circuit or part of the processing that's designed to kind of change or distort or add harmonics to the signal that's actually changing our tone whereas something like a fader is really designed to be a clean boost so i totally agree with you you want to set those first gain stages that um, affect the tonal quality of the sound first and then just adjust kind of fine-tune the the volume using any clean boost stages which is with something like a fader or again a clean output knob on a plug-in will typically have a similar effect uh one other thing too that i want to talk about that's maybe getting more into the realm of mixing a little bit but when i'm recording into my daw i always am opting for um keeping things in the highest signal-to-noise ratio configuration that I possibly can. And that even includes whenever I bounce down a session and stem it out to send to somebody else to mix or master. So I I do want to touch on this a little bit. I would much rather prefer to get tracks that are all optimized with that highest signal-to-noise ratio and then have me have to balance them after the fact. Mm. Then in comparison to having somebody send me a session where all their levels are pre-balanced for me, and then I just have to affect the audio uh, or do the mixing after that. And then we can get into the details of this, but the reason that I prefer it that way is because once that audio is bounced out in that form, then you're kind of... um, you're you're kind of preserving it or freezing it in that state. And if you drop a fader way down low, I've had this happen before, especially with uh, like percussion instruments like tambourines, where they might be recorded at a, a good level, but um, the fader is pulled way down and then exported so that it's there's barely any signal there. And then on... A mixing perspective after the fact, when I bring this into my DAW, if there's any kind of processing that I want to do to it, I almost have to inevitably increase the volume of that for my plugin to even 
register that mm. there's something happening for it to even be processed. So once it has to be turned up that much, you're kind of inevitably uh, turning up or you're increasing the noise floor that maybe at the time it was recorded was completely fine. But because the fader has been pulled down and it's been exported at a lower level, then I have to turn it back up and I'm increasing all that noise that wasn't once there just to be able to process it. Does that all make sense? That's yeah, a, that's, that's a, a lot of absolutely. That's a great. That's a great point. Yeah, minding the levels that you're outputting your tracks at is, uh, yeah, is absolutely important. And you're right. So like, you could have a perfectly good signal, but if you export it at a very, very low level, well, that's the same as we talked about. If you have seventy-five percent signal, twenty-five percent noise, then when Ben gets that track, he says, "Well, this track is too quiet." And he turns up the fader. The noise is coming up with it. So absolutely, yeah. Cool. Well, maybe not the most exciting topic. I mean, I, lo- I love it, but uh, we hope that you guys <laughs> it's important, got though. something. You got to get this stuff right. It's very important. Plus, if you go to any uh, recording artist cocktail parties, you will now be able to start your sentences with, actually, I heard, and then proceed with explaining what gain staging actually is and why it's like a bird game for your phone that went viral some time ago. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> if you guys have any questions that we didn't touch on, um, signal chain or setting up your optimal recording signal chain, please reach out to us in the DIY Recording Guys Facebook community. We would love to answer your questions and see that because as long-winded as we can be on these episodes, there's still a ton of stuff that we haven't covered. So please reach out to us there. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram, um, Facebook. All right. Well, good episode, Ben. And until next time, this is the DIY Recording Guys reminding you to check yourself before you wreck yourselves. All right. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers, and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.